When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Welcome back. This is week three of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. Uh, in, if you're just tuning in for the first time, what we do here, uh, Danny and I usually uh, will be having some other guests on soon. But uh, for the time being, it's he and I. We talk about the most recent games, wrap up any news or anything that's going on. Uh, we'll take user questions a lot. And then as time goes on and there aren't games every night, uh, we'll get into free agency in the draft quite a bit as well. So uh, we record Sunday through Thursday night, so it's there for you in the morning and your morning commute uh, during the week. Um, so today, I think we mostly want to talk about uh, Spurs Clippers. That was the big game today. We'll touch on some of the other series a little bit as well. And then, of course, also the injuries uh, that are starting to pile up here through the playoffs. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some time for some user questions as well, as well at the end. Uh, Danny, what's up? Doing well. Uh, do you want to start with Haka DeAndre, or do you want to get to that later? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the worst part of it, right? It's like, not only are, do you have to watch the Haka DeAndre during the game, but then you also have to listen to everyone discuss it, you know, ad nauseum afterwards as well. Um, I, I think we have a little bit of a different angle on it, though. Yeah, you know, well, I, I, I hope so. Um, I mean, I think to... To me, I was surprised that they took DeAndre out, that Doc took DeAndre out. And I think really, because he had success leaving him in, in uh, game two. Now, usually when they do it at the end of the third quarter, you can argue it makes more sense to take him out because he needs his rest anyway. And so you can take him out then. But then, you know, he went 0 of 4 during that period in the third quarter. They took him out. And then they took him out again when they started doing it the next time. So what do you think? Do you agree with that decision to take him out? I don't. I For, for a couple of reasons. I mean, you have kind of the emotional standpoint that it, it, to me, it kind of shows that you have a lack of faith in him. And also, it racks up fouls oftentimes, though they did a better job of managing who got the fouls this time. It can rack up fouls on guys who you don't want it to. That's what happened in Game 2 with Tim Duncan. And I think in Game 3, possibly, as well. But I wouldn't have taken him out just because I think it... That's exactly what Pop, Popovich wanted. Uh, Harlbos Bugaris tweeted during the game about whether that was a goal, and I responded that, in my mind, the primary goal is to get DeAndre out, and the secondary goal is everything else, because he's their, really their only option at that spot. Yeah, and we talked about on a Thursday's episode, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday night's episode, that you know we thought, just play a game of chicken with him. And him missing four free throws 
it's not like, okay, he's missing him, he's making him. Like, that's random chance. That can happen for him to miss four. You know, now if he misses eight in a row or nine in a row, then maybe you can sort of come up with the idea that, um, you know, something's going on and he's going to keep missing him. But I, and even then it's a little, it's, I'm a little skeptical of that, frankly. I mean, it's either the percentages are the percentages. It's either a good strategy or a bad strategy based on that. And I think if I were Doc, especially since they were up, I would have just said, all right, you know what? Try and score against our set defense. You had zero success doing that in uh, game two. So go ahead and try. We're up. Uh, and if you want to put your guys in foul trouble, that's fine. And then, of course, you know, they did something which I don't think I recall ever seeing was they actually gave a foul to even get to the bonus. Yep. They had a foul to give before the bonus. And so that had some negative ramifications. Yeah, because that got Chris Paul to the line a couple extra times. And one of the ways that I've thought about countering this, being somebody who covers a team with a really bad free throw shooter in Andrew Bogut, is if I were managing the minutes of one of those target players, especially on a team where there aren't as many of those guys, you know, the Houston has a different situation. What I've thought about is that you should just have those guys start every quarter for sure, and then once you hit the bonus, you make that evaluation, and then in the last two minutes, unless you have them holding the ball a lot, it's fine. And it seems to me like, especially Doc, has never really thought about it in that context. Granted, most teams don't do this, but the, but the Spurs are. So that's been one idea that I had to try to counter it while it still exists in its current form. The other thing you could do, too, is say... We're going to give Chris Paul a rest now because he had five fouls yep. when they did that. So give him a rest, and then you bring in someone like Dante Jones, who's not an acceptable offensive player but is probably better than anyone they have defensively on the wing. Bring bring him in and see if you can get some stops. And, and you know maybe then Pop will say, all right, I'm going to let you play offense now, And but then that defeats the strategy as well. So... uh Let's move on beyond the the following. Um, a few possession. Uh, I mean, we got to start talk by talking about Chris Paul. Paul has, I think, thirty four points on twenty four shooting possessions, and he shot one shot at the rim the entire game, which he missed, and still managed to shoot eleven for nineteen and get fouled five times and make all ten of his foul shots. A remarkable performance. Yeah, he played really, really well, and he did well. And from what I could see, regardless of who was on him, you know, he, he had Green for portions, he had Patty Mills for portions, he had Tony Parker, of course, for portions, and he was he was doing it all. I mean, Chris Paul, I I feel like at certain points he's his greatness has become somewhat underappreciated. Partially, it's because of the lack of huge playoff moments. But I mean, I asked the question a few weeks ago. I said, you know, he has to be in the conversation of the modern era. Obviously, you can talk in the past of the best basketball players who never won an MVP. Yeah, although he should have won it in 08, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean, I thought, like, that was sort of the Lifetime Achievement Award for Kobe Bryant that year, but Paul was better than him and led a, a worse team to almost you know, almost as good of a record that year uh, in that New Orleans team that ended up losing to the Spurs in a Game 7 at home. Uh, but that was that was really his peak year. He was unbelievable yeah. in that year. Uh so let's see what what else do we have in this game? Danny Green. It's another he's had I think it's three rough games now in this series and that's a problem. You know, he's he's up for he's up for a contract. He's a guy who's more of that role player than a star, but you still need 
him to hit open shots and to play really tough defense. And he's I don't I don't see it as an effort problem. I just think he's not getting results right now. Oh for six from the field, played twenty eight minutes, and unlike in, in past times, I don't think you can get on pop for not playing him enough. Twenty eight minutes is a lot for somebody who's shooting that poorly. Marco Bellinelli only played six minutes, so it's not like he was playing Marco over him. Uh, Green's defense wasn't quite as good as we've come to expect. He committed some silly fouls, and that was on Chris Paul. And one of the most maddening things about playing against Paul is the guy, as we noted, you know, never really gets right to the basket anymore, and yet he gets fouled all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, one of our followers, um, I'm probably mispronouncing her Twitter name, but I, it's it's a takeoff on Gone Girl, but it starts with a Q. It's Q O N E Girl. Uh, she had, had a great point, which was he, I think, got fouled five times on non-shooting fouls in the second half and shot free throws off of them. And so that was really, in large part, your game. Um, so the, the Spurs just couldn't stop following him, and it's got to just be so maddening for a coach where this guy isn't getting to the basket at all. There's no need for these fouls. And yet, just through his smarts and his own team's lack of discipline, they were kept putting him on the line. Would you combine that with the other factor that was huge in this game of the the high pick and roll that the Clippers were running that the Spurs just don't have an answer to? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, they weren't falling a ton on that. But, yeah, I mean, this is the play that we talked about in the, the game two wrap-up where they start in kind of a horn set, but then both guys will basically set a screen together, both big men, on either side of the ball handler's Defender way out by half court because the Spurs love to pressure up. And what that does is it basically prevents you from going under the screen because there's nowhere to go. There's no under. There's a guy on either side of you basically blocking your path from going under. And so it it guarantees that Paul is going to be going downhill against the big man. The Spurs don't want to have their big guy go all the way out to the half court line because Paul can just blow by him that way. And so then you're basically guaranteed at that point a mid-range jumper, at least for Paul, going against Duncan or, you know, Dia, depending which side of the pick he goes off. And if those guys step out, then when he takes that jumper, whoever against the big guy, you've got Griffin and Jordan crashing the offensive glass, uh, and they're not going to be boxed out. That's one of the great things for the pick and roll is that you can't really get a good box out on the roll man. Or... What they'll do, too, is they'll have then Jordan set another screen for Griffin to get open at the top of the key or for him to get the ball down the lane in an advantage situation. Pop has been pretty much powerless to come up with it. They ran that probably five times in a row in the fourth quarter and got a bucket every time. Yeah, it's it's going to be one of the major questions for the series because they've been running it. As you said, I, I believe they ran it a fair amount in Game 1 as well, but Game 2 is where it really took hold. Yeah, and, I mean, the... As far as I'm concerned, keep running it until they stop you. Like, especially in the fourth quarter, if they're not going to stop you, just keep doing it. I mean, I, I wonder, it'll be very interesting. That'll be the number one thing I'll be looking for in game five is what their adjustment is on that. Um, they tried, I think, just switching it in game two and they had a little success right away, but now the Clippers have adjusted to that. So, uh, 
we'll see. Any any other thoughts uh, on this game? I mean, there are a lot of a lot of guys came through for the Clippers. Yeah, a lot of guys did. A lot of people were talking about Austin Rivers. I made a reference to it being the Austin Rivers game, but that's more about his play relative to expectations. I mean, he did do he did make some noise out there, but his defense was. Was it, it was shaky. He had. I remember there were a couple nice plays that Parker had on him. I think Mills had a couple too, but it was good to see that. I mean, he's a guy who's been much maligned. I think that's underselling it a little bit. And it's. I always get some satisfaction out of seeing those guys produce well. And I think Chris Paul said he deserved the game ball. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna correct Chris Paul on that, considering he he was the orchestrator. Yeah, let's let's appreciate this for what was a nice performance and a critical performance for the Clippers and. Uh, Rivers had 16 points on nine shooting possessions and was plus seven, which is very rare that anyone off the Clippers bench is going to have a big plus. Big Baby also uh, was plus 12 in this game, and he set some monster picks out and contributed very effective post-defense on Tim Duncan a couple of times. So Big Baby played well. Uh, I would like to see the Spurs force him to beat them a little bit more if he's out there. But if, going back to Rivers, he wasn't really doing a ton differently. As you noted, he didn't do that well defensively. He was basically giving up as many points as he was scoring to Tony Parker in that early part of the fourth quarter. And the shots that he took, he only took two at the rim. One was a fast break layup. And then the rest of his shots, which he went five or six on, were the normal kind of 40% floaters and mid-rangers that he usually takes and you know hits 40% of. So... Just a, a hot shooting day. He was able to take advantage of Patty Mills and maybe make those floaters a little better and more in control than they normally are. But I wouldn't expect this kind of performance from him going forward. But we'll just appreciate it for a nice performance in this game. The other thing I want to mention, and I think you talked about it a little bit, is while it was a far smaller problem than in Game 3, DeAndre Jordan, and who just finished, I think, third in Defensive Player of the Year, he... I don't think he was as much of a destructive force as he can be on that end and in terms of his engagement. And, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge part of the success for the Clippers in games five and six. Yeah, and interestingly, he was minus five in this game. Six points was all. And he's always an important offensive performer because he sucks the defense back to him and you can't leave him under the basket when Blake Griffin is doing his rolls to the basket because you'll you'll get ooped. But, um, you know, Jordan had four blocks. You'd think superficially he had a great performance, 14 rebounds, 11 on the defensive end. But there are just so many times when Spurs, and the Spurs don't have any great finishers really other than Leonard, would drive to the basket and he just wouldn't jump. He'd be pretty close to there. He'd sort of get tangled up with Tim Duncan or just for whatever reason just like take a step towards the guy and not jump. And, if you don't jump, it doesn't really matter how good a shot blocker you are, and they know that he's not going to jump a lot of the times. Like there'll be some games where he's just out of his mind and and is able to contest everything, but that's why he's a good defensive player, not a real defensive player of the year candidate in my mind. Yeah, I wrote a piece on Thursday for Warriors World talking. I went on a little bit of a tirade about DeAndre, and one of the things, because I got a little bit of bounce back from some Clippers people, which is fine, and one of the things that I brought up in that, and obviously I'm not a huge on-court, off-court guy, but one of the things that is fascinating about his year is that teams shot more in the restricted area when he was on the floor than when he was not, and they made more of them this year. 
And you can, a lot of times with on-off, you're thinking about substitutes, but in this case, that doesn't help him because his general replacement is Spencer Hawes. So it's not like they were replacing him with some sort of Kylo Quinn-type shot blocker who just makes his stats look worse by comparison. It's just something that happened. I'm not saying it's a big thing. I'm just saying that it's it's compelling for a guy who has his reputation. Yeah, the, I, I agree with you there. I mean, the, the on-off numbers for him defensively have not been all that great this year. And, and if they're, to me, I think you can start with that. You don't want to make it just the gospel, but a lot of times there'll be a reason for that. Oh, maybe he has some awesome backup who feasts against the other team's backups. Or if he has a great on-off, maybe it's because his backup is terrible, right? Or he plays with a great starting unit. Um, and he does play with a great starting unit. <laughs> But, you know, he's still not able to really positively affect their defense from an on-off standpoint when you consider all that. Uh, it's definitely a reason why he might be a little overrated as a defender. One other point I would make on this, Spurs only 6 out of 25 on threes, and that's not going to cut it. But, you know, a lot of those were pretty open, and they still managed to have 48 points in the paint. They got to the foul line 35 times, um, more than the Clippers did. So this might be just an instance of them missing shots, and I don't expect the Clippers to defend quite as well. The problem was for the Spurs that they couldn't stop the Clippers, but the Clippers also shot extremely well from the mid-range. So I think this series is still just a a toss-up. Who do you like going forward now at this point? I still like the Spurs. I think that the Clippers have had had two good games. They played well, but when I think of... What team is more likely to reach their heights? I still think it's the Spurs. And both teams have won on the other team's floor, so I'm not as focused on home court advantage. It obviously does help. I mean, the the Spurs won loss record during the Duncan era on the road. We've talked about it before. But I, I feel like the Spurs are the better team on the, uh, for most of the circumstances, and I have to go on that. What about you? Well, I, I'm still, I think I'll stick with my Clippers in seven with them having the home court now. Um and that home court means a lot more when you have two out of the two out of the remaining three games at home as opposed to four out of seven. True. Let me ask you this. Do you feel better about the Clippers' chances now than you did at the start of the series? Absolutely. Absolutely I do. I, I think that especially now, I mean now they only have to win two out of three with two on their own four, and we've seen how well they can play. This isn't a situation where they got lucky or anything like that. They played really well. They earned their wins. And so I think and I and I don't think that it's a situation where, oh, they're not going to be able to repeat that. I certainly think they can. So I feel substantially better about it. I was more confident, I think, in my Spurs pick than you were in your Clippers pick, and I have become substantially less confident in my pick, and I think you've, I don't know, maybe stayed about the same, maybe gotten a little bit more confident. We also got to give some credit to Blake Griffin, who has been outstanding in this series in large part. Uh, His passing has been huge for the Clippers. He had another seven assists. Tonight, he was plus 14, scored 20 points on 9 out of 17 from the field. Uh, he's looked much more athletic and aggressive than in the regular season, as I think we've touched on before. Another point is, if you're Greg Popovich, do you consider going with Patty Mills down the stretch of some of these games uh, with the way both those guys have looked in this series? With the way they've looked in this series, yeah, I think you have to. But Parker Parker had some better moments in Game 4. I think he looked... We, somebody made a comment, I can't remember. Mostly guarded when he was guarded by Austin Rivers. Fair, fair point. But <laughs> And that's part of part of what Popovich's rotations do is he'll play Parker in three stints, and so he'll get him back in with the second unit so he can take advantage of those guys. 
which is something that I advocated for the Warriors to do with Steph Curry, and maybe they'll eventually do it, but they don't really need to. I advocate for just about everyone to do that with their best players. I mean, I think it just it meshes more with how human beings actually recover. That's true. Why why have the guy on the bench for 25 minutes in real time when it takes you five minutes to recover? You know, I mean, and and feel like you're pretty close, so then you, you play another stint, go out again, recover again, and come back in. I think that that kind of makes more sense, and, you know, the trainers that I have talked to agree with me that that's kind of how it works, but there's a perception in the NBA that you want to get into your rhythm, you want to play a long stint, that's what players like. Um, but then again, the Hawks and the Mavs and the Spurs all do that, and they do it with their star players. So I, I think at some point more teams should start doing that. Something that you said over the weekend that resonated with me, and I completely agree with it, and we've talked about it before in terms of respect and gravity, is that the way that the Clippers are defending the Spurs changes when Mills is on the court, and it opens up more space for everyone else because of the way they handle him, and I think that's something that they might need in close games. So that's another argument for Mills in this series, is that they have to respect his shooting substantially more than Tony Parker's. Yeah, I mean, neither of those guys... Mills provides some ball pressure, but he's not going to be guarding Chris Paul. And it's interesting. I think Pop started off with Parker on Paul, and it's kind of like, come on. We know that that's not your best matchup. You're probably not going to be able to get away with that. Just go with the real matchup. You know, and maybe, like, from the jump, game one is important. Just do it. I mean, and that's actually a theme we're going to get to a little bit later, too, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I've not been incredibly impressed by Greg Popovich's uh, game management in this series. Yeah, and one other thing I'd mention with that is that when you're only playing Danny Green 28 minutes, I think you want to make his 28 minutes count relative to everyone else. And so you give him that hard defensive role and you hope that he gets the offense, but he's a defender first in the system to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Mills could provide a little more spacing. Parker... You see it. there's a big difference in how much Chris Paul, who's a smart guy, is able to help off of Parker versus help off of Mills. And the Spurs actually got a couple of buckets because Paul was unwilling to leave Mills uh, during his stint. And I think Pop actually did close with Mills, although, you know, it didn't really do a ton. They were too far down to really make any kind of a comeback. So that will be something to watch in the future. He did. I noted, I think it was about the 430 mark that Mills was in, and I was pretty pumped about that, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think ultimately, though, Patty Mills is a nice player, but I think it's more, it's not like he's an unbelievable guy. I think it's more an issue that Parker has declined to the level that we're even having this conversation, and that's that's a problem for the Spurs, especially yep. they're really not, their inability to make Paul work on defense, I think, is something that is going to be an issue for them. And it's a little bit concerning because he's the guy that they gave the extension to, and right now... Manu and Tim Duncan are on expiring contracts. So why don't we touch on a, on a couple of these other series real quickly? Um, one of the one of the themes that I mentioned earlier that I want to get to is, I think it's time for coaches to just stop messing around. Start, especially in the playoffs, just start your best lineup. You know what your best lineup is, or at least you know what you think it is, right? Like. For, for Rick Carlisle, I'm pretty sure he didn't think that Raymond Felton was a better player than J.J. Barea to start. It's just, well, this thinking of Barea as kind of a bench guy, oh, you know, there's just like this needless pull towards the conventional in starting laps. Another one would be 
Dwayne Casey and Toronto. This isn't why they lost the series. I mean, they were going to lose it regardless. But they start Valanciunas. It's pretty clear that he believes that Amir Johnson and Patrick Patterson are his best combination. He closes with that most of the time, even during the regular season. And while you might need to sort of keep a guy starting to have him be engaged, you know, someone like Valanciunas to have him be engaged during the regular year, this is the playoffs. Like, you can't mess around with that. you got to start your best unit. And Dallas did that today. They actually won. And the Raptors were another one. The Bulls, obviously, starting Gasol and Noah together. Like, Tom Thibodeau knows that's not their best lineup. Uh, he's, you're not going to see him close with that, I don't think, when everyone in the front court is healthy. So uh, stop messing around, coaches. Put your best guys out there. Because when you don't start with your best guys, that's you make it impossible to get your best combination of players out there the maximum amount of time. I mean, if you start and finish with your best guys, you can get 24 minutes out there just about with your best lineup. And if you don't do that, you're limiting it to you know maybe 10 minutes or or 12 minutes with your best lineup, like the last six minutes of each half. And we talked about it before, but to me, in some ways, the most egregious of these because it happened for an entire series was the Celtics. I mean, Isaiah yeah. Thomas. Isaiah Thomas was their best creator, and playing him with one of the other guys may, gives you at least a chance to hide him if you don't want to put him on Kyrie. Well, if you play him with Avery Bradley or Marcus Smart, however you're going to do that, then you can put one of them on Kyrie. Yeah, it's not great to have him on Jr., but at least you're doing that and you're giving yourself a chance to create instead. And, of, and you get him away from Shumpert too, who was really locking him down pretty well. Give him some minutes to get going against Kyrie or Jr. Smith or. Force them to start Shumper. And the new controversy machine, Kelly Olynyk could be could be in the starting lineup as well. Yeah, and they didn't start Jay Crowder for a while. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a good segue to get into now some of these injuries, and we'll start with the carnage in that Boston-Cleveland game. Which had injuries and will have other carnage as well, sadly. Yeah, you're talking about the suspensions? I, I think it might only be singular, but, yeah. Yeah, so... It, you know, it would be kind of surprising. I thought that Olenek's play was somewhat reminiscent of Dwayne Wade's play where he, I think, dislocated Rondo's elbow in Game 3 of that Boston Heat series in 2011, where it wasn't really a basketball play. I, I think it's very clear that when I say not a basketball play, that means that you've gone beyond the point of doing something to try and win the game or try and get the ball. I mean... That's not where you grab onto someone's arm with both hands. You're obviously committing a foul at that point, and it's just not something that's done. Like you, you won't see someone do that sort of an action just about ever in an NBA game. I don't recall seeing it, and so I don't think that Olenek was like, "Oh yeah, I, if I apply pressure at this 45 degree angle, I'm going to dislocate his shoulder." Like it's not that, but it's, "Hey, you're doing something because you got mad." There was some hand fighting, and now you did this because you were angry and you lashed out. It wasn't about trying to help your team win and about basketball anymore. And that's what I mean when it's not a basketball play. And I think we've all been there playing pickup where, where you sort of get so mad at someone that you do something like that. But, you know, I think that is something, especially when you injure someone, that is behavior that needs to be deterred and might be suspension-worthy in my eyes. Yeah, I I was thinking more for the single suspension, only one suspension for the Cavs. But for Olenek, for me, you you summed it up pretty well. It's funny, two lawyers talking about this, because I feel like there's a lot of legalese that we could be using here. But what concerned me was the second hand. It's that it was on, it looks like it was on Kevin's wrist. And that, I'm not going to put intent in or anything like that. What I, what I think is that 
he might have been trying to do something and he never intended for it to be that bad. And the problem with it when you get into those kind of circumstances, if you in, intend to do something and it gets worse than that, that's a little bit of a problem. And I think that's the type, of, the type of behavior that you want to deter. You don't deter it with a ridiculous suspension because he got more egregiously hurt than probably anybody envisioned. But you still don't want somebody to just be yanking on their arm when they are the rebound's pretty much already secured and all that. And the TNT guys were talking about, oh, you know, that's the type of way that happens. To me, it was a little bit different. And it's not because Kevin Love got badly hurt, but it just the little little machinations of it. But again, the the big part about this, and this gets into a question that we asked that we were asked on Twitter by Jermaine six one one, is does anything change with Kevin Love out? And to me, the answer is a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, and I really wanted to include this one because I got quite a few questions of this ilk, frankly. And yeah, you need to understand Kevin Love is still a very good basketball player. I granted, I granted he wasn't an all-star this year and they haven't really been using him. His back probably hasn't been right either, but, and they haven't been using him as a passer the way they used to. He probably wasn't even going to be like a huge post-up threat against the Bulls. Maybe a little bit against Miritich he might have been. But his shooting still is really a big, big issue for anyone trying to defend the Cavs. And that's his shooting is a big reason why, or when they put in James Jones for him too. uh, But his shooting is a big reason why these like sorry isolations that they're running are still really effective because you just can't help that much. And, of course, the Celtics don't have the personnel to really – help and then close out on someone at the three-point line at the big positions. But, yeah, he's huge. The biggest reason, though, I think he has been somewhat reduced to a glorified shooter and you know and rebounder, and that's still very important at the four position. But the biggest issue is they don't have any other backup bigs who are any good. Yeah, well, I mean, putting in Tristan definitely, you know, it is a downgrade. It's a substantial downgrade, but it's it's replacing Tristan's other minutes. That's the way that I like to think about it, is when you bump everybody up, you have to replace the people that you Precisely, yeah. And with Kevin also talking about the a potential Bulls series, is that something we saw when the Warriors and Bulls went, went at it at the United Center is that when Thibodeau is playing Gasol and Noah together, he sometimes is more willing, and, and obviously we've talked about how that lineup should not play much, if at all, together, but they are. And in those circumstances, Kevin Love can exploit that, because if they're not going to... Pal, that's just not what he can do, and you don't want no all the way out there. That hurts his value a lot, too. So I think that there is an exploitable matchup there, though it might have forced Thibodeau into some more sensible rotations. Yeah, and so you would imagine that they're probably going to start Thompson and Mozgov, yeah. They may finish up with James Jones coming in then. I mean, James Jones defensively is going to be a train wreck. Uh, you know, I mean, I think they'll have LeBron at the four, but James Jones really will be playing the four on offense. But if they start both Mozgov and Thompson, that's actually a totally fine matchup for the Bulls because neither of those guys can shoot. And I, I was really worried that during those Gasol Noah minutes at the start of each half, the Bulls were going to get waxed. Now, if they go totally conventionally and don't have any shooting on the floor, I think that Bulls unit will be much better at defending them. And that gets into the idea of moves and counter moves. To me, if you know that the Bulls are going to start that way, then you don't give them that opportunity, and you anticipate playing those guys together, but you try to shift it in a way, and then if the Bulls counter it, then you switch it back. Well, you know, I mean, if if you're playing the Bulls and they're starting Noah at power forward, he's been so bad offensively, and, and... 
I mean, even to the point now, because he can't shoot, he can't really finish inside or, or finish pick and rolls. And even when he's doing his whole point center thing, a lot of times he'll dribble the ball around a lot at the elbows, looking for some amazing back door, which isn't going to be there because they're laying 10 feet off of him. And he doesn't ever just move the ball to the other side. So the, the Bulls are just seeing possessions die when it gets into Noah's hands at the elbow, particularly when he's playing with Gasol. He can't enter the ball to Gasol because his man's way off him. And he just, he needs to just move the ball to the other side quickly. And that's not really in his DNA. He wants to be the point center. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say go ahead, start James Jones or even, even start with Shumpert. And Jr. once once he's unsuspended, and LeBron, and then it. you know go it. go with Mozgov, and all right, like Noah's not going to hurt us on offense. Let's make him space out to the three point line. I, I think that's their best five if Kevin Love can't play. And we talked about the importance of starting your best five. Yeah, I mean, I think that Blatt, in large part, has gone with James Jones instead of both Shumpert and Jr. at the same time. But if LeBron is willing to do a little bit more dirty work at the four since it's the playoffs uh, defensively, then, yeah, I think you can roll with that. And against the Hawks, theoretically, if, if that happens, I don't think that even LeBron at the four, while Millsap is, is a very talented player, he on offense he's generally staying out a little bit more than I than I expected. So you don't have that same thing. And hopefully Kevin Love will be back and close at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the love injury is really going to hurt, though, just because it's more bad players you have to get in. The Bulls have a pretty solid bench, although they haven't, they've been terrible with Aaron Brooks on the floor without Rose, but they still have some pretty good guys. And especially if Thibs can jigger the rotations correctly, always a question mark. They could really take advantage of the Cavs and those bench units. Um, Question, so for yeah, you. Well, Question for you. Yeah. If yeah, yeah. if J.R. Smith is suspended for, let's say, the first two games, how long do you think it's going to take for Blatt to realize that he needs to begin the game with Shumpert guarding Derrick Rose? Oh, if he's suspended, oh, Shumpert will start then, obviously. So I'm sure they'll they'll put Shumpert on Rose right away. That's one thing that Blatt, Blatt put Shumpert on Isaiah Thomas right away, too. Yep. They've been doing that all year. Kyrie rarely guards the other team's point guard if the other team's point guard is any good. Um I mean, I guess that's going to leave Kyrie on Mike Dunleavy, which I think will probably end up being fine for the Cavs um, because Butler Butler is someone who Kyrie certainly can't guard. Um, Especially with how he's playing now. Yeah, yeah, he's been unbelievable. Uh, another issue, the Bulls need to wrap up this series tomorrow because that'll make the reports are that the series with the Cavs will start over the weekend if the Bulls wrap it up. If not, if it goes to six, they won't start until Monday or Tuesday. So if Love is indeed out two weeks, which is the preliminary projection that Brian Windhorst provided, then you get another game of no love, uh, depending on when he comes back. So it's imperative that the Bulls finish this up tomorrow night. And it's sad that you have to think about that, that you have to think you know, about trying to maximize somebody else's injury, but that is the way that it works. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Bulls fans are going to be uh, – crying a river for the Cavs, considering that their best player has missed the last three postseasons. <laughs> so I, I think that the, the Bulls, Bulls fans will be quite happy to benefit from any injury luck in their favor. Oh, yeah. No, no arguments there. All right, let's a couple quick hitters in some of these other series. Atlanta looked awful on offense against Brooklyn Ugh. on Saturday. 
I think the big problem was they just couldn't finish at the rim. And one of the statistics was that on plays defended by Brooke Lopez, that they shot some comically low percentage, like one out of 15 or something like that. And and Lopez is an okay defender right at the basket. A lot of those were just missed easy chippies from the Hawks. You know, I mean, Paul Millsap probably missed like three left-handed layups and granted his shoulder on his right shoulder is not that great, but he and Horford and and the point guards, they're going to shoot better at the rim. I think with just a little bit more normal shooting from the Hawks, that that game is totally close. I am a little worried that they haven't been able to score on the Hawks or on the Nets the way you would have expected. But uh, I, I mean, I think they're, if they lose this next game, then you can maybe get a little worried about them. But I think it was just an unlucky shooting game at the rim for them in game three. More than just game three, has their offensive stagnation affected the way that you're thinking about a potential second round series? Um, yeah, well, you see how well the Wizards have played and their success with the small lineup. That's another thing we can talk about, too. My one note on this was from John Schumann, which was through three games. Game four, they blew him out today, and you know they're moving on to the next round. It doesn't really even count as a game. The Raptors were not exactly into it today. But through three games, the Wizards' small lineup with Porter and Pierce at the four was plus 25. And coincidentally, the Wizards throughout total in those three games were plus 25. So that small lineup made basically the entire difference uh, in the series through the first three games. Yeah, they they played really well in Toronto. I, I don't know if it was necessarily that they didn't have a counter for it, but they just didn't, you know, they just didn't really counter it. And the Wizards just, they played well. I mean, they're, they're a team that has been very up and down offensively primarily, and they had probably their best stretch of the season the last four games. And that always bodes well, though now they'll have about a week off. One thing you can point to towards Toronto, there's been a lot of speculation that they'll remake their roster. I don't want to get into that too much now, but their lack of any kind of big wing who can also shoot a little bit was the death knell for them in this series. They had no one really to match up. It was Patterson, and he Patterson was someone who did, kind of failed in that role as well. I mean, you see they lost to the Nets when they were playing Pierce at the four last year. They lost to the Wizards with Pierce at the four this year. And a big problem is they just don't have a wing with any size who can defend and not be a total offensive liability. And so that's something that they're structurally going to have to fix a little bit. I mean, they've got just a ton of shooting guards. They got Vasquez, they got Lou Williams, they got Terrence Ross, uh, they got DeRozan. All those guys, pretty much all their wings are shooting guards, and a lot of them are small shooting guards. And that, that's that's going to have to get balanced out assuming they don't just totally blow things up. Yeah, they have a lot of big decisions to make, and they have some guys under contract, and they what makes their situation fun, and a lot, there are a lot of other teams like this, is a lot of their free agents are unrestricted, which means that Toronto has some impetus there, but also those guys, if they want to do something different with their careers, they have the right to do it. Um, another little piece of news that was buried in Mark Stein's excellent column about the Pelicans, sort of a uh, looking to the future column was, from them was that Eric Gordon is expected to opt back in. He has a player option for next year, the fourth year of his contract that he originally signed with the Suns and then was matched by the then uh, New Orleans Hornets. Um, that's for about $15 million. That means that the Pelicans are really going to have about $8 million in cap space if they were to let Omer Ashik go. And so that means 
I think they're a lot more likely now to retain him since Gordon is, is opting in. And because you really can't replace Ashik with $8 million. And then you also get to stay over the cap if you retain him. And then they'll have the $5 million mid-level exception, and they can use probably the biannual exception as well for $2 million and bring in a little bit more depth. If they let Ashik go and then re-sign some other stopgap center for $8 million, which ain't going to get you much, then the only exception you have is the room exception for $2.8 million. So it makes a ton of sense for them to re-sign Ashik and stay over the cap. Uh, so, uh, but it all, a lot of it depends too on what his market is and uh, how many years and how much money he wants. Yeah, and the other component with the with the way over and under the cap is that that's part of what the moratorium does is that it allows you to kind of make those decisions without having anything be binding, and so they can talk to centers and see if they can find somebody in that seven million seven eight million dollar range if Ashik isn't going to stay. And or otherwise they can look at mid-level guys and they can do all that and you, you don't have to do it with the the pressure that every decision you make is done. Everything's going on at the same time, but nothing can be finalized. So I think that they're in a really tough situation. People like me, including me, were very critical of a lot of the moves they made and it was because there was a possibility of something like this happening where he would get leverage and he might if he wants to get years, he gets years and then that weighs on their cap as everything else happens with Anthony Davis, hopefully he signs an extension for them and everything else. And so they're, the, people think about New Orleans and they're going to improve because of age, but they might not get better talent-wise. Yeah, no, I, I think bringing in guys will be very difficult. And again, another topic for as we get into free agency, let's get to a few uh, questions before we sign off here. Um one we, we sort of touched on already, this is from Cooper W. Are the Spurs better with Patty Mills at point guard than Parker right now? Or is he just not good enough defensively? Uh, yes or no, better with Parker or better with Mills? Better with Mills for right now. Yeah, you know, I think I, I probably agree just because of the way he spaces the floor and he's no worse defensively than Parker. Parker has a little more height on him. Um, but, yeah, no, I think I think it is Mills. Uh and maybe you bring Parker in to operate more against the second unit. Um, okay, uh, next one. This is from uh, Alan. Uh, no, wait, hold on. Let's let's do this one. This is from Rockets Bia. Uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Bia is the Bia part. How much of an advantage is it, if at all, for the Rockets to get a week's rest while the Spurs and Clips battle to advance? Uh, this was tweeted during the game. The Rockets ended up losing tonight. Um, but the, the whole rest question, where do you stand on that whole thing, Danny? I think that rest is important, but the more important part of it is something that gets into an issue we haven't talked about yet, which is the Mike Conley injury, and it's just the possibility of somebody getting more seriously hurt. And that's where it's more important, because you have a substantially smaller chance of the thing like that happening in practice than in a game. And you when you can get out clean, yeah, you might have rest for part of a game, but you won't have any lingering stuff that can happen with injuries. And it, my Mike Conley's injury could end up swinging, not swinging, but being a major part in their next series, even if he plays, just because it's going to really affect him. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to be looking forward to going in amongst Draymond Green and Andrew Bogut uh, with a what it sounds like multiple facial fractures, uh, and this supposedly is going to be a little bit more complicated. 
than the one that Russell Westbrook had. That was more like down by his cheek. Uh, so the, uh, from what I understand, the surgery is a little less complicated that way. If it's closer to the uh, eye socket, the way Conley's is, then uh, there can be a little, a little bit more complex. Um, but I think, to me, in terms of just other than the potential for injuries, I think that's the main thing. I don't think that there's anything better in terms of getting rest or like continuing to play and staying in rhythm as far as how ready to play you are. I think that's kind of overrated. It's just, it's not surprising that this gets talked about all the time because, Hey, guess what? If you finish your series early and you're not playing for a week, the media needs something to talk about. So that's probably why this is kind of over talked about a little bit, but the biggest thing when it matters is if you have guys who are already injured or you might get someone injured in the remaining games that have to be played as you touched on. And Houston has guys that have that have things that they're dealing with, so it would be nice for to, it'd be nice for them to get that rest. All right, did we have one more we were gonna do? Yes. Uh, so Allen N A T T, unless it was two N's and Allen, I apologize. Asked us if the Wizards, if you th- if we think the Wizards could get a first rounder for Drew Gooden, and I think I was gonna use this. <laughs> I was gonna use this to go in a different direction, which is that. There is a, a period before... Wait, wait, is that direction that they should be able to get two first-rounders for him? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually that... So in there's a timeline before the July moratorium, which starts July 1st, The teams can make trades. You hear about draft day trades all the time, and once, you're, once your team season ends, you can make trades as long as they fit all the other rules. However, there is an additional restraint, which is that teams cannot trade players who will become free agents or who could become free agents. So if a guy has an option that hasn't yet been decided, you can't trade him. And so not only for Drew Gooden is that you couldn't get that for him. I mean, they got they gave up a first rounder for Marcin Gortat, who is substantially better than Drew Gooden. But Drew Gooden, as a upcoming free agent, cannot be traded during this time. So it's it's a nice it's a nice thing to think about when you're Considering potential trades before July 1st, it narrows the universe of possible players substantially. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an obvious thing, but it certainly bears repeating. If a guy's going to be a free agent, you can't trade him. Um, So, all right, I think that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks a lot to our listeners for the questions. We will be back tomorrow night, a big three-game night again tomorrow. And also, it would be great if you guys would be so kind as to give us a rating on iTunes. You can subscribe on there also. That'll help us keep this going. It's been a fun project so far, but uh, the more listeners we get, uh, the easier it is to keep it going. So uh, thanks a lot. You can always also ask a question on Twitter using the hashtag DunkedOn. Uh, that's where we're getting all these questions. So uh, if you ask a good one, yours will be on here. Talk to you guys later. don't go to geico.com car insurance can be hard like early 90s heavy metal hard i'm yelling and screaming and i'm loud 
GEICO makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on GEICO.com or the GEICO mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything.